Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawarong and the Wadawarong people of the Eastern Kulin Nation and we wish to acknowledge them as traditional owners. We would also like to pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and Aboriginal elders of other communities who may be listening. They did what all romantic hunter... They did what... <laughs> I can't talk today. <clears throat> Have you been drinking? Yes, again, <laughs> for breakfast. <laughs> Just a quick try, I don't know, before I get out of bed. Doesn't, oh. doesn't everyone do that? Yeah, sippy cup next to your bed. <laughs> they did what all romantic Hunnam. Hun- <laughs> <laughs> oh. Okay. Oh, honey, honey. Stab it, stab it. Okay. <laughs> Called something. something. Okay. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Chickstry, the podcast that is rewriting the history books to include the women that were written out of them. I'm Annie. That's Phoebe. Hello. We just had a mouse incident. I <laughs> know. Oh, Since moving to the country, I really have to be on my on my mouse game, and I just it's. Oh, I don't know what it is, but I just, it makes my skin crawl. I'm going to tell you a story that's really going to freak you out. No, okay. If, it's, if it ha- involves you falling asleep in a mask. Well, it's not me, but it's my mum. So this is back in the 60s. I've okay. heard this story, okay. right? Okay. They used to go, my mum and my aunties used to go to Streaky Bay in South Australia. That's where my grandmother's family was from. Nice name, Streaky Bay. And Streaky Bay. Anyway. I don't know, must have been the late 60s, maybe early 70s. They had a mouse plague and they were sleeping in the hotel and they woke up and had mice crying. No. How many? How many are we talking? I don't know. Oh, it's making me itch to sleep away. Oh. Anyway, that totally won't happen to you because you're moving out effective immediately. Because <laughs> <laughs> I no longer live here. Oh, dear. Yeah. Anywho, how are you? I'm well. I'm well, thanks. You're well? Better than you. How are you? <laughs> I'm on edge. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. I'm on edge. Um, I've also been absolutely torturing myself watching Dharma, um, the new Jeffrey Dharma. Oh, are you what? Oh, that, that's too much for me, I think. It's a it's a lot. Like, I mean, yeah. I love a bit of true crime, but he's getting – Ryan Murphy made it, so the guy yeah. who did American Horror Story and um, he did Glee and – what else did I do? A couple of those. I know. Oh, one to the other. Glee, American Horror Story. And it's and he's getting a lot of kind of flack around just how grisly it mm. is. Because Yeah, I've seen there's been war- like content lot. warnings. Yeah. That's, yeah. So you're watching that. I watched Do Revenge. Oh, is weekend. that good? Oh, it's so good. Yeah. If you love a 90s like teen movie, it yeah. really harks back to that um to that time. And it's really yeah, it was really it was nice. It was nice. It was nice. It wasn't nice. It was a yeah, it was a good one to watch. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now I thought I should mention this. Please. So, you know, a few weeks ago I told you that England at one time for a very short period was known as Stephen. Yes. Yes. 
Anyway, well, my bestie Donna said to me, you need to find out more about this. I need to know. I need to know. Okay. Anyway, try as I might, I cannot verify it anywhere. So I feel like it must have just been, you know, some uh, probably a really short period of time, like maybe a matter of months or weeks. Yeah. Anyway, I looked into King Stephen a little bit more and found out that he was the son of William the Conqueror, who you may have heard yeah. of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Stephen was brought up by his uncle, King Henry I, right. and essentially gained the throne by usurpation because King Henry's daughter, Matilda, was the rightful heir to the throne. But, you know, being mm, woman, people there. were reluctant yes. to yes. accept her. Yep, yeah, fair anyway, enough. Anyway, I might go, I won't go into more of that because it's really confusing. That whole right, just I, it confuses uh, me anyway. The whole the, the, the chain of the, things. Yeah, the Plantagenets and the conquerors and oh, the Normans and everything. Plantagenets. Um, but I know I just like that word. I just really want to throw that yeah, word. Yeah, that was <laughs> that was good. What does Plantagenets mean? I don't know. There were some of the they they took over. At one oh, point. like it was yeah. a and it, it was oh, like a okay. like a house of oh, uh, yes, right. yeah, like um, the Baratheons. Yeah. Anyway, this isn't my historical fact, yeah. but I just thought that um, that I'd throw a little fact in there. Yeah. So this time period relates a little bit, or is sort of surrounds a little bit about the um, Battle of Hastings, which oh, yeah? took place in 1066. So I'm not sure if you've heard of the Bayo Tapestry. Which yeah. was a yeah, which yeah. was a very long tapestry, seventy meter long tapestry yeah. um, that depicts this very famous battle, and it's said that it was stitched by nuns. Um, although some dispute this and believe it could not have been done by nuns, mm-hmm. and one of the reasons being mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. that the tapestry has ninety three penises. Penises. Yeah, depicted in it. Eighty-eight of those were of horses, and five belonged to actual men. Oh my god! Um, and in that whole thing, only three women were depicted. Yeah, it doesn't surprise yeah. me. So you know, the question is, how could the nuns possibly have stitched it? Because they wouldn't have known what a willy looked like. I don't know what it looks like. So there you go. There you go. A tapestry mm. full of willies. I'm looking after Evie's dog at the moment, and <laughs> Sissy is on high alert for that mouse. You should see her. She is oh. like a lion. Oh, come she, on, Sissy. Take one for the team. She's roaming around the lounge room trying to find mm. this goddamn mouse. Oh, God. It's like I sound like I live in squalor. I don't. I just live in the country. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. Uh, got a little fact for us? I do. I do have a little fact. Mm. Um, have you, oh, do you know the expression mad as a hatter? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So it's probably a little bit outdated now. Mad Hatter's Tea Party. That, yeah, that's exactly right. So it's yeah. probably most well known because of Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland yes. and the Mad Hatter. Yes. Well, the expression actually comes from the fact that hatters used to use mercury to make their felt hats. Oh, that's which, not good. No, that's right, which in turn expo- once exposed to for prolonged periods would send them mad. Literally. Yeah. yeah. So it was said that some of the side effects of using the mercury in their trade was erratic and flamboyant behaviour, excessive drooling, mood swings and other debilities. Oh. Yeah. So Jeez. the use of such solutions became so prolific in the felt industry that mercury poisoning became an endemic at wow. one point. Yeah, and it was also suspected that there was a link to dementia in hat makers, um, the hat makers' trade due to the exposure of mercury. 
So the expression was coined around 1837. Mm -hmm. Felting began prior to that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, But in America, it it wasn't until 1941 that the use of mercury in the felt industry was actually banned. In when? So 19... in 19, 1941. Wow. So less that's than 100 a, years ago. Yeah. That's like it reminds me of I was watching a history series, I think, at one point, and they were there were a lot of people getting sick, like and they didn't know what where it was from, and it was from the wallpaper, something oh, in the wallpaper. Okay. Maybe it was a similar thing. Yeah, or lead or something. Lead, because lead. there were yeah, yeah. It was uh, yeah. Bless yeah. all those people that have just got to test it out. Just experiment I know. and, and go, like, oh well that doesn't as- work. Yeah. Asbestos. Asbestos. You know? Yeah. You know this that was cigarette a, at the time. smoking. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Vapes. Somebody It's coming. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Any, any, um, update on the mouse? You should see. And it's just like her head is on a swivel. Like, where is this bloody mouse? Sissy's standing guard, so I'm hoping. I've got four (laughs) dogs in the house. Surely one of them (laughs) shall do something. Surely one of them can catch a mouse and take it outside. I don't want to see it. I don't want to know about it. And if you can, just knock it on the head lightly so it c- kind of gets knocked out a little bit and then wakes up in the in the <laughs> pasture. Thank you. In the pasture. I don't know. <laughs> have you heard of Susan B. Anthony? I have, yes. Yeah, so a lot of people have, right? So mm. she's, she's kind of the woman that you think of when you think of the women's movement in, mm. in America. But she was actually joined by the woman I'm going to talk to you about today, a woman by the name of Elizabeth Cady. She, well, both of them were just absolute forces with what they did. But I also think it's really sort of timely at the moment. I'm following um, Clementine Ford's promotion on her new book about marriage mm. and mm-hmm. how antiquated it is. And um, I 100% agree. Um, I'm not married, but if you are, amazing. Um, <laughs> and this kind of also goes into a little bit around um, Elizabeth's standing on on marriage at a very, very early period in history, which is um, pretty incredible. So let's get started. And it's a long one, I've got to say. All right. Excellent. I get comfy. Strap in. Get real comfy. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of information and I tried to edit it down, but um, I'll see how we go. Elizabeth Cady was born on November the 12th, 1815 in Johnstown, New York. Her family was one of the wealthiest families in the town. They had a mansion which stood in the town square and they had as many as 12 servants. So very well to do. Yeah, 12 servants. Yes. That's a lot. Yeah. Her father was an attorney who uh, became justice of the New York Supreme Court. He was quite conservative. However, Elizabeth's mum was a little bit more progressive. She was a supporter of the abolitionist movement and she even signed a petition for women's suffrage in as early as 1867. Oh, wow. That is early. Right. So Elizabeth was one of 11 children, six of whom died before reaching adulthood, and this included all of the male children. Uh, Although she recalls in her memoir 
uh, which is called 80 Years and More, she never felt any barriers for being a woman. But when her last surviving brother died at the age of 20, her father told her while she was grieving, oh, daughter, I wish you were a boy. Oh. That's, yeah, it's not nice, is it? No. So due to her social position, Elizabeth received a pretty good education compared to women of the, her era. She attended John's. She attended Johnstown. I want to say Jonestown, but it's Johnstown. Mm, it's very John. hard to say. <laughs> okay. She attended Johnstown Academy until she was fifteen. She was the only girl in the advanced maths and languages class. She also learnt. A f- a philosophy and horsemanship from her brother-in-law uh, and would often participate in debates with her father uh, when he had guests over. And it was almost like she was trying to live up to this expectation of her father having lost all his sons mm. and she had to sort of try to prove she was, well, she's into horses and she can debate and she yeah. can, you know, learn languages and she's really good at math. So kind of all these things that boys were, you know, really good at. Apparently. And the story goes that when any of the children were misbehaving, Elizabeth's mum would send them down to their father's office for him to deal with. But for Elizabeth, this was actually not a punishment. She actually loved being sent down to his den, to his office, because she got to read and have grown-up conversations with her father and uh, his law clerks. She really wanted to go to college, but at the time no colleges accepted female students. There's just Standard. that little hurdle. Mm. Mm. Uh, and although her father didn't see any need for her to have any further education because she would, of course, marry and mm. become a housewife, so why do you need an education? He wasn't on board with her having any further education, but he did eventually come around and agree to enrol her in the Emma Willard School, originally called the Troy Female Seminary. And it sounds awful, but it's really progressive. Uh, So often referred to simply as Emma, it is an independent university preparatory day and boarding school for young women located in Troy, New York. It was known as the first women's higher education institution in the United States and was founded by women's rights advocate Emma Willard in 1814. Oh, wow. Right? Yeah. The educational philosophy known on campus as empowerment. Love it. Love a wordplay. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Teaches that every young woman who attends Emma Willard will be encouraged to develop fully in all areas of her life as a strong intellectual in a variety of disciplines, as a practitioner of her chosen passions, as a social member of the community, and as a responsible global citizen in her future. 1814. Mm. Uh, It also had a program called Practicum, Practicum, which allowed students to pursue coursework at area colleges, career internships, community service, and individualised athletic training. So it was like on-the-job training. Yeah, it's like TAFE. Like a TAFE. Mm. Amazing. She was, you know, obviously really into being educated and she kind of was thinking that she was going to follow her father's footsteps and do something around law. And she recalls women coming to see her father after they had had a divorce or they'd lost a husband. And she quick, quickly realised that women had absolutely no rights whatsoever. 
and she vowed to her father that she will one day change the law so that all women were treated equally to men. And she said to her father when she was a child that she was just going to cut those bits out of the law books. She's just going to make those laws not exist anymore. And he was like, oh, there's kind of a process you have to go through. Process. process. But um, yeah, you just, you go for your life. So very early on, she had this kind of idea that oh, things aren't things this doesn't seem right you know mm. and I think especially because she was going to that really progressive school where she's learning to be this strong independent woman but society's not letting her be that she was also really interested in the um, abolitionist movement as well and she would often travel to her cousin's house who was also uh, into the abolitionist movement and she enjoyed having conversations and learning all about it. It's here she meets her husband-to-be, Henry Brewster Stanton. So he begins courting her but her dad is not happy. Elizabeth almost listens to her dad but but eventually she comes around and she finally accepts Harry's proposal but on two conditions. The word obey must be removed from the ceremony and she would only take her husband's surname as part of her own. Love it. She wanted to sign herself as Elizabeth Katie Stanton or E. Katie Stanton but not Mrs. Henry B. Stanton, which women at the time did or were forced to. Mm. In her memoir, she writes, I obstinately refuse to obey one with whom I am supposed to be entering into an equal relation. Just, I mean, she's on to something. Exactly. (laughs) So while they're on their honeymoon in England in 1840, they did what all romantic honeymooners do and they attended the World Anti-Slavery Convention (laughs) in London. (laughs) So romantic. Isn't Isn't it? Wow. Yes. Wow. Although the topic of the convention interested Elizabeth um, and she had a keen interest in the movement, she was more appalled by the way that the women delegates were being treated. Uh, Women were not allowed to participate even though they had been appointed as delegates of their respective abolitionist societies. They were actually required to sit in a separate section hidden behind curtains throughout the convention's proceedings. Oh, you want to melt just in case, you know? Right. Just don't look at her. Don't look don't, at her. No, don't look. This convention had been a bit of a turning point in Elizabeth's life and it really makes her start to think that legal changes are necessary to overcome gender inequalities and she is on a freaking mission. She'd been married for a few few years now and she began having children and so her personal experience and also that of all the women that she hung around with, um, the other wives and housekeepers, um, in her mem- memoir she writes, the wearied, anxious look of the majority of women impressed me with a strong feeling that some active measures should be taken to remedy the wrongs of society in general and of women in particular. Although she knew she had to do something um, about it, she was busy running the house. She was being a good housewife and she had children at this stage, so she wasn't able to act on her instinct right away Um, and she was also at at a bit of a loss as to how she could even engage in social reform. She kind of didn't know where to start. 
1847, the couple moved to Seneca Falls and by now they have seven children. Oh, God. Uh, at the time, childbearing was uh, considered a bit of a delicate subject and very private. Mm. Not too many people mm. talked about it. Elizabeth, however, didn't agree with all that secrecy and she would raise a flag in front of her house after giving birth, <laughs> a red flag for a boy and a white one for a girl. Is that very telling, a red flag for a boy? Red flag. <laughs> Maybe that's where that comes from. Red flag. Maybe it is. Uh, because of the spacing of her uh, children's births, one historian has concluded that she must have used birth control methods. Um, Elizabeth herself said her children were conceived by what she called called voluntary motherhood. In an era where it was commonly held that a wife must submit to her husband's sexual demands, she believed that women should be should have command over their sexual relationships and childbearing. I mean, she's just so progressive, mm. right? Yeah. Questioning these things at that time, it's just amazing. So in the summer of 1848, she meets Lucretia Mott, a progressive Quaker woman. So Elizabeth's invited to one of their meetings. and She really likes what these women um, are on about and she finds herself in sympathetic company. So she uses this as an opportunity to try to rally these, these women to help her come up with a plan. She's like, I want to do something, but I just don't know how, to, how I do it. And by the end of their very first meeting, they had agree, agreed to organise the very first ever women's rights convention in Seneca Falls. Lucretia uh, Mott was famous for her speaking, which was rare um, during an era in which women were often not allowed to speak in public. So uh, Elizabeth feels like so she's got Lucretia under her belt, they've got a plan and they're going to come up with this first ever women's convention. So let me tell you a little bit about the convention. Mm. The Seneca Falls Convention was advertised as a convention to discuss the social, civil and religious condition and rights of women. It was held in the Wesleyan Chapel of the town of Seneca Falls and it spanned over two days in July in 1848. The meeting compromised of six sessions, including a lecture on law, a humorous presentation, <laughs> I don't, don't know what that was about, uh, and multiple discussions about the role of women in society. Elizabeth and the Quaker women presented two prepared documents, one being the Declaration of Sentiments and an accompanying, accompanying list of resolutions to be debated and modified before being put forward for signatures. So the Declaration the Declaration of Sentiments is based on the Declaration of Independence mm -hmm. and they thought they're going to follow the same structure and they're going to come up with this document that is mm -hmm. going to be their kind of manifesto about all the things that they have a beef um, with men over. Um, it's also known as the Declaration of Rights and Sentiments and it was signed in 1848 by 68 women and 32 men. So at their very first convention, a so three, they had 300 attendees at the very first Women's Rights Convention and 100 people signed the petition on the day. Um, so it was basically a list of all the things that women wanted to take men to task on. 
Mm-hmm. So I'm going to just give you a couple. As an example, he has not ever permitted her to exercise her inalienable right to the elective franchise can't vote. He mm-hmm. has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she has no voice. He has made her, if married, in the eye of the law, civilly dead. Oh. He has taken from her all right in property, even to the wages that she earns. And it just goes on and on and mm. on. And it's they're all facts, basically, mm. about it gives you a really clear picture of of what women were facing mm. at this time. Elizabeth's sister, Harriet, also attended the convention and she signed it. However, her husband made her remove her signature Ugh. after he found out. Attracting widespread attention, it was soon followed by other women's rights conventions, uh, including the Rochester Women's Rights Convention in Rochester, New York, two weeks later, and then in 1850, the first in a series of annual national women's rights conventions. During the 1850s, uh, Elizabeth's husband, um, his work as a lawyer and politician kept him away from the home for nearly 10 months out of every year. Great husband, right? Oh, my gosh, she's so lucky. This (laughs) frustrated Elizabeth when the children were small because it made it difficult for her to travel and to keep, you know, organising her conventions. So the pattern continued in later years um, and they were living apart more often than together and they were quite literally maintaining separate households for um, several years. So when the first National Women's Rights Convention was organised in 1850, Elizabeth was unable to attend because she was pregnant. So instead she sent a letter to the convention entitled Should Women Hold Office? And that would outline the movement's goal for that uh, convention. The letter emphatically endorsed women's right to hold office, stating that women might have a purifying, elevating, softening influence on the political experiment of our republic. Hear, hear. Uh, Thereafter, it became a tradition to open every National Women's Rights Convention with a letter by Elizabeth, who did not participate in person in a national convention until about 1860 because she was Mm -hmm. busy being a housewife and a mother. But she was still able to still able to be involved. She still found a way to be involved. Uh, and then, yeah. So as these conventions kind of kept going, the issue of women's right to vote had become the central topic of the United States uh, women's rights movement, and pretty much all they would discuss at the um, at the conventions. The conventions became annual events until the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861. Mm -hmm. So it's also around this time that Elizabeth meets Susan B. Anthony, Mm -hmm. who was visiting Seneca Falls. Uh, Susan B. Anthony came from a Quaker family and she was already very active in social reform. The two soon became really good friends and co-workers and they would go on to be the driving force behind the women's movement in America. So because Elizabeth was homebound with seven children while uh, Susan was unmarried and free to travel, uh, she would assist by supervising the children while Elizabeth prepared speeches for Susan to give. So I'm going to rattle off a few things that they achieved together in their lifetime and then I'll go into Mm -hmm. a bit more detail because there's so much I couldn't, we'd be here all day, but, Mm -hmm. you know, the, the gist of the story is that these two women 
women are fucking amazing and the reason that the that women can vote mm-hmm. pretty much as well as um, they had a big hand. Shh, stop talking. <laughs> Okay, so in 1852, they founded the New York Women's State Temperance Society after Susan was prevented from speaking at a temperance conference because she was a female. Mm-hmm. I'll go into that in a little bit more detail. In 1863, they founded the Women's Loyal National League, which conducted the largest petition drive in the United States in United States history up to that time, collecting nearly 400,000 signatures wow. in support of the abolition of slavery. Mm-hmm. In 1866, they initiated the American Equal Rights Association, which campaigned for equal rights for both women and African Americans. In 1868, they began publishing a women's rights newspaper called The Revolution. In 1869, they founded the National Women's Suffrage Association as part of a split in the women's movement, and I'll go into that in a little bit of detail. In 1876, they began working on what uh, eventually grew into a six-volume piece of writing called The History of Women's Suffrage. So they've just look, they've just done a little bit, you know, mm, just done a yeah. bit over those like 41 years or whatever yep. they were together. Um, so I'm going to go into just a couple of things because, like I said, there's, there's so much. So the temperance uh, movement, so knowing that they had their work cut out for them, they're very smart. They started with something that they knew they could get a lot of people on side for and the temperance movement they saw was actually a women's rights issue. So excessive consumption of alcohol was a severe social problem during this period. Laws at the time gave husbands complete control of the family and its finances. The law provided almost no recourse to a woman with a drunken husband, even if his condition left the family destitute and he was abusive to her and their children. If she managed to obtain a divorce, which was difficult to do, he could easily end up with sole guardianship of their children as well as own everything. So the temperance movement in the United States was born to curb the consumption of alcohol and it actually is what culminated in the prohibition of alcohol through Mm -hmm. the 18th Amendment um, in the United States Constitution from 1920 to 1933. Mm -hmm. So they thought, you know, we'll start small. It's At least it's one issue that is affecting women that, that might make a difference to women's lives. And equality. So in 1852, Susan was actually elected as a delegate to the New York State Temperance Convention. But when she tried to participate in the discussion, the chairman stopped her, saying that women delegates were only there to listen and learn. Mm. Sit behind your curtain. And go behind your curtain, mm. please. Susan and other women walked out and announced their intention to organise their own women's temperance convention. Later that year, about 500 women met in Rochester and created the Women's State Temperance Society with Susan as president and Elizabeth as the state agent. This leadership agreement with Elizabeth in the public role as president and Susan as the energetic force behind the scenes was the characteristic of the organisations they founded throughout their years together. Another area where they both felt they could make a difference uh, and also sticking to her word that she um, had said to her dad about she's going to change the laws about women's um, rights around property 
her and Susan set their sights on the Married Women's Property Act. The status of married women at the time had been set by English common law, which held that wives were under the protection protection, mm. and control of their husbands. In the words of William Blackstone's 1769 book, Commentaries on the Laws of England. Sounds like an epic read. Isn't it? I know. It's mm. just, and it's so fair and lovely mm. to women. <laughs> By marriage, the husband and wife are one person in law. That is, the very being or legal existence of the woman is suspended during marriage. Her existence is mm. suspended during marriage. Flip a table, going to flip mm. a table. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The husband of a married woman became the owner of any property she brought into a marriage. He could, sorry, she could not sign contracts, operate a business in her own name or retain custody of their children in the event of a divorce makes me furious. Right. Across the country, state legislatures were starting to take control away from the common law traditions by passing their own legislation. And in 1836, the New York legislature began considering a Married Women's Property Act. Elizabeth's father was a huge supporter of this law reform, given he had no sons to pass on his wealth to, um, and he would be eventually faced with the prospect of passing all of his wealth to his daughter's husbands. The law eventually passed in 1848. It allowed a woman it allowed a married woman to retain the property that she possessed before the marriage or acquired during the marriage and it protected her property from her husband's creditors. This law was actually reformed shortly before the Seneca Falls Convention. It strengthened the women's rights movement by increasing the ability of women to act independently. By weakening the traditional belief that husbands spoke for their wives, it assisted many of the reforms that Elizabeth championed Uh, such as the right of women to speak in public and to vote. So they're starting to just slowly Mm. pave the way, making things a little bit more easier. Um, So they're on a roll. And in 1853, Susan B. Anthony organised a petition campaign in New York State for an improved property rights law for married women. In 1854, Elizabeth spoke to the Judiciary Committee arguing that voting rights were needed to enable women to protect their newly won property rights. So here they are going, well, we've done that. Now we can just, we can do this. We can do, we can do the voting thing. Um, And this is in 1854. We know when voting became. Yeah. Legal for women. Yes. Yeah. Um, so in 1860, uh, Elizabeth spoke again to the Judiciary Committee, this time before a large audience in the Assembly cha- Chamber, arguing that women's suffrage was the only real protection for married women, their children, and their material assets. The legislature passed the improved law in 1860, but still no votes. Uh, in 1863, Susan moved into Elizabeth's house in New York and the two women began organising the Women's Loyal National League to campaign for an amendment to the US Constitution that would abolish slavery. They became the first national women's political organisation in the United States and in uh, and in the largest petition drive in the nation's history. Um, 
they collected nearly 400,000 signatures so um, to abolish slavery. And it can be said that this petition drive significantly assisted the passage of the 13th Amendment, which ended slavery. Wow. I mean, go girls. That's incredible. And they talk a lot about men, you know, having having a lot to do with like abolishing mm. slavery. But yep. you don't hear about that this no. was started by women getting two women getting 400,000 signatures <sighs> to abolish slavery. Yep. It was like at the time it was like 1 in 20 Americans were wow. had signed the petition. That's huge. Yeah. Unbelievable. So although its purpose was the abolition of slavery, the League made it clear that it also stood for political equality for women, approving a resolution at its founding convention that called for equal rights for all citizens regardless of race or sex. Um, given that they had so much success with the petition for to abolish slavery, Elizabeth knew that petitioning was the only political tool available to women at the time when men were um, only allowed to vote. After the Civil War, uh, Elizabeth and Susan became alarmed at reports that the proposed 14th Amendment in the US Constitution, which would provide citizenship for African Americans, would also for the first time introduce the word male into the Constitution. Elizabeth said that if the word male was to be inserted, it's going to take us another century to at least get it out. I didn't know that. That's, I mean, that's incredible that that they it was actually it, it was never in there, and it was and it was put in there on purpose to give male uh, African Americans um, citizenship. Yeah, female. I mean, don't even worry. Who cares? It's not even part of the conversation. Mm. So in January 1866, they both sent out petitions calling for a constitutional amendment providing for women's suffrage, and they also organised the 11th National Women's Rights Convention in um, May of 1866, which was the first since the Civil War began. So they're back mm-hmm. on track now with their um, with their conventions. The convention voted to transform itself into the American Equal Rights Association, whose purpose was to campaign for the equal rights of all citizens, regardless of race or sex, especially the right of suffrage. So there, this is around the time, and it's really you don't really think about this either. But there was. There were, it was kind of like all of these people were fighting for the same thing, but there was conditions around a lot of it. So um, Susan and Elizabeth were basically, they're on one side saying that they believed that all people, regardless of sex or race, should be allowed to vote. Uh, they insisted that all women and all African Americans should be enfranchised at the same time uh, and work towards a, woman, a women's movement that would no longer be tied to the Republican Party or be financially dependent on the abolitionists. And then on the other side, you have someone by the name of Lucy Stone, who she was uh, willing for black men to achieve suffrage first and wanted to maintain close ties with the Republican Party and the abolitionist movement. And this led to the the, the Rights Association splitting in two mm-hmm. and they were basically competing with each other. But they were still wanted the same thing, basically. Yeah. Except one was a little racist. Well, just a tad. <laughs> just a little bit, yeah. yeah. Uh, in 1866, Elizabeth found a loophole and declared herself the first woman candidate for Congress. 
She said that although she could not vote, there was nothing to stop her uh, in the Constitution from running for Congress herself. So she ran Mm -hmm. as uh, independent against both the Democrat and Republican candidates and she received a total of 24 votes. Oh, well, it's better than nothing. Bless her. 24 votes. I know. So early in 1869, Elizabeth called for a 16th Amendment that would provide suffrage for women, saying the male element is a destructive force, stern, selfish, aggrandizing, loving war, violence, conquest, acquisition. In the dethronement of women, we have let loose the elements of violence and ruin that she only has the power to curb. Mm. Oh, it's so good. Um, So in 1871, the movement officially adopted what had become known as the New Departure Strategy, encouraging women to attempt to vote and to file lawsuits if denied that right. Soon hundreds of women tried to vote in dozens of localities. (laughs) Love it. Susan actually succeeded in voting in 1872, um, for which she was arrested and found guilty in a um, widely publicised trial. In 1880, uh, Elizabeth also tried to vote um, and when the election officials refused to let her place her ballot in the box, she threw it at them. <gasps> the the box or the ballot? I don't know. It just it doesn't say, but I was questioning that as well. I hope it was the box. Mm, same. Yes. Uh, in 1876, uh, Susan moved into Elizabeth's house in New Jersey to begin working with her on the history of women's suffrage. She brought with her several trunks and boxes of letters, newspapers, clippings and other documents. Originally uh, envisaged as a modest publication that could be produced quickly, the history evolved into six volumes of work with more than 5,700 pages written oh over a period of 41 years. Mm. Wow. Now, the reason why that most of us have heard of Susan B. Anthony and not a lot about Elizabeth is a controversial thing that took place in 1895. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth publishes The Woman's Bible. It's a provocative examination of the Bible that questions its status as the word of God and attacked the way it was being used to relegate women to an inferior status. In it, Elizabeth methodically works her way through the Bible, passage Jeez. by passage, <laughs> commenting on them and often sarcastically. So she's it's the Bible and she's got all these like notes in notes. Yeah. She's got the highlighter she's out. She's got the highlighter out and she's popped her own notes in. Yeah. Commenting on everything. Can you imagine? Mm. What she did was to scrutinise the Bible from a woman's point of view, basing her findings on the proposition that much of its text reflected not the word of God but prejudice against women during a less civilised age. In her book, Elizabeth uh, explicitly denied much of what was central to traditional Christianity. She says, quote, I do not believe that any man ever saw or talked with God I do not believe that God inspired the Mosaic Code or told the historians what they said he did about women for all the religions on the face of the earth degrade her. And so long as uh, women accept the position that they assign 
Except the position that is assigned to her, her emancipation is impossible. Although it was really successful, it was a bestseller with seven print runs within six months. Wow. And it was also translated into several languages. It led many of the younger uh, suffrage leaders to hold Elizabeth in low regard for the rest of her life. So it really the whole, you, if you just don't, you don't fuck with the no. Bible. No. With the God, no. you know. No. So it really, really put a, a um, a mark against her name and there's even like later on there's academic papers or you know scholarly articles that don't even mention her um oh, Elizabeth. So she's completely written out completely written out yeah. because of this one thing she did which yeah. is a shame but it just goes to show how you know how connected and attached people are to mm. religion um, in 1898, Elizabeth published her memoirs, Eighty Years and More, in which she presented the image of herself by which she wished to be remembered. In it, she minimised political and personal conflicts and omitted any discussion of the split in the women's movement. Um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton died in New York in October the 26th, 1902, 18 years before women would eventually achieve the right wow. to vote in the United States via the 19th Amendment to the US Constitution. The medical report said the cause of death was heart failure, although there is some rumour that um, came out after she died that she had apparently told her doctor that if she starts to go downhill um, to give her an overdose so Mm -hmm. she can just be done with it. Elizabeth is commemorated along with Lucretia Mott and Susan B. Anthony in the 1921 sculpture Portrait Monument by Adelaide Johnson in the United States Capitol. Um, it was placed for years in the crypt of the Capitol mm. building <laughs> and it was only moved to a more prominent position in 1997. Oh, my God. Right? Wow. Yeah, that's that's insane. Um there's, she's got lots of kind of landmarks and there's a Elizabeth Cady Stanton house in Seneca Falls. Um, it's now part of the Women's Rights National Historic Park. Uh, in 2020, the Women's Rights Pioneers Monument was unveiled in Central Park in New York City on the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, giving women the right to vote. Um, and you remember the 100 women that signed the mm. petition? Apparently only one women who signed that original petition actually got to witness the 19th Amendment. I know. So almost 42 years since the amendment was first tabled, 42 years. Mm. The 19th Amendment's adoption was certified on August the 26th, 1920. The amendment prohibits the United States and its states from denying the right to vote to citizens of the United States on the basis of sex. And that is the absolutely incredible and long story of Elizabeth Cady Stanton and there's so much more that I could have gone into. There's so many other things she did, which is amazing, like even from just um, dressing differently, like she would mm. she would wear bloomers. They were actually called bloomers named after a woman called Amelia Bloom mm-hmm. and so she'd wear pants, which meant her skirt could be a little bit higher, which meant, I mean, she could carry a child and a candlestick up the stairs without tripping over. Oh, God. 
It's the small things, isn't it? It's the small mm. things. But then, mm. you know, you don't even think about stuff like that. The practicalities of wearing mm. those dresses. Yeah. You'd have to hitch up one side of your skirt holding the baby. You yeah. don't have a free hand for a candle. Mm. Imagine how many women fell up the stairs. Yeah. Imagine how many houses burnt down. And all houses burnt down, mm. totally. I know. Mm. Women, probably very common that women fell down the stairs and injured themselves or their husband mm. pushed them, one or the other. Yeah, one or the other. Uh, yeah, so that not that incredible? Like, <gasps> Wow. She packed a lot in. Oh, my God. Like in her life. Yeah. She packed a lot in. I mean, she plus seven children. When did that woman ever yeah. sleep? Seriously. And, it, I mean, it's just incredible. And I love that, I mean, we, because we do, like we know, we always talk about when women got, the opportunity to vote, but we haven't mm. ever gone back and looked at where it all began. Mm. Right back, you know, in the early 19th century. Yeah. When, you know, just questioning those things like, I'm not going to say I obey my husband. I'm not going to take mm. my husband's name. I'm not going to be called Mrs. Henry. Mm. And the thing was, too, she was probably in a privileged position in that she came from money that she could do those things. I mean, it was huge, absolutely. huge undertaking. Yeah, but, absolutely. you know, someone of a much poorer standing yes. would never have been able to do something like that. So she's led the way regardless. But, yeah, she's obviously had that yeah. um, that behind her she's, as well. And a, and a relatively, you know, her mother was progressive, but her father was um, relatively progressive too. Yeah. In the fact that, you know, he he wanted his money and property to go to his daughters exactly. or his surviving children. Yeah, exactly. Mm. He was questioning that kind of um, and also that he sort of eventually came around to her going to to school and sending her to a mm. really, really progressive school yeah. as well. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm glad she, she did come from privilege but she used her powers for good. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely. Know. So that was a long one. Wow. And, uh, yeah, we will uh, be in your ears next week. We will. Show you there. We will. See you then. Chat then. Bye. 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 Bye.